Criminal Magic. Chapter 14. Wednesday, 14.09, GMT-8. Praising what is lost makes the remembrance most dear. Philhead does have at least one tenacious bit of nostalgia for the days when he ran the drug lab. There was never, not for a moment, a lick of paperwork. In fact, when he got right down to it, there was a rather strong disincentive for this stuff, given the fact that the product in question was always on somebody's list of something to bust you for. Documenting pretty much any of his activities back then would have been the true shit-for-brains maneuver of all time. If it hadn't been for the guns, bad tempers, psychopaths, and downright nastiness of his time as a pharmacologist-slash-addict, he can imagine that his life as such might have continued on in that vein for quite some time longer than it did in the end. As he sits in his office inside the pharma lab in Newtown, literally surrounded by forms and correspondence, John is somehow able to blot out all the shit work and for a moment focus on the freedom and irresponsibility of those days. A bit of Janis Joplin's voice wends its way through his memory. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Ah, how wrong she was, Pill thinks to himself, but wrong in such a wonderful way. It's the perversity about Newtowners and an irony about John's current life that the folks around here love to document each other and every little thing. John has never figured out whether it's some kind of authority wish fulfillment among the generally anarchistic lot that make up this populace or a dark, disturbing strain of totalitarianism that lurks at the heart of all people, making them always want their story told, their authority reinforced, and their opinion respected and repeated. Whatever the reason, and long story short, the paperwork pisses him off, and so he puts it at the back of the line, and then puts it off some more, until finally, in some cosmic retribution for all his days of instant gratification, it has descended in one horrendous afternoon of signing and responding and corresponding and writing and so on and so forth, and whatever the fuck else the bastards come up with to keep him well and truly in his own personal file hell for a few hours, and this afternoon is one of those times. Pill stands away from the creaky wooden rocker that he insists on using and stretches his arms and neck. Certain postures really do re-energize a body. He looks at the clock and decides on the spur of the moment to give the facility a once-over. It's a totally defensible procrastination measure. He opens his heavy office door under the infernal din of the plant and walks out into the brightly lit production area. It doesn't take any considerable time to stroll around the perimeter of the main plant, so he walks back through the clean room doors into the lab areas. Immediately, he spots Dana working intently on something or other, looking for all the world like any ordinary lab rat, bent over her stereoscope, shuffling slides into it, and making notes about what she observes. It's a mystery to him how she can function like this. The girl has no life, no history, no sense of self. Man, can't envy that. But there she is, working away, like that part of the story had never been told. Amazing. Not exactly like an amnesia headcase that just wandered in from the boonies. Pill walks over and stands slightly behind her for a moment. Everything okay? he asks in a gentle voice. No need to startle the woman. Dana looks up from her work. It seems to take her a moment to recognize him. Pill finds himself wondering if her oddly intense concentration an almost forgetful distance between her and the object of her interest is something consistent throughout her life or is simply a result of her injury. 
Oh, she flicks a grin. Hi. Sorry, I was just sort of getting into this a bit, you know? A shrug, a slightly embarrassed grimace. I think this must be something I did before, or real similar anyway. It just feels... Dana flails her hand awkwardly in the air for a moment. Good, you know, I guess, or nice to be doing something. I don't know. Look, anyways, I'm glad you stopped by. I wanted to thank you for putting me to work. Got a feeling it wouldn't be doing too great without something solid to occupy me? Pill offers a genuinely warm smile. She's a likable sort, anyhow. No worries. But you may not want to go thanking me all that quickly. I got a kind of a weird proposition for you. Dana gives him a resigned look, and Pill immediately reverses. Whoa, no, Jesus. Did that, no, did that, uh, that did not mean, and it did not mean to sound like that. Hands go up and out, varnishing the air with erasing motions. No, not what I meant at all. He is blushing. Okay, then. All right. Starting over. Beginning now. Look, after Dr. Jornley and I got you settled in here, we had a little confab about how we might be able to help you out with your memory thing, and I think we maybe came up with something. No worries, man. I'm still here. Dana's voice is pleasantly humorous. Pill is a curious duck, bluff and hard, but still very sweet. Well, I don't want you to take this all super spook or whatever, but from time to time, like I was saying before, we got these Hindu types up in here trying to push old Newtowner down into the river. And some of these fuckers show up with something of an update to their biological firmware. Know what I'm saying? Dana shakes her head, understanding the conceptual direction, but not exactly the point. Just pay attention. He'll make it clear. Okay, look. These Hindu boys, the pushers especially, have been modified, artificially hyped up so they can kick ass and take names without feeling the pinch, no? Hindu biosex uses the old SSRIs on these badasses, but in wicked doses, right? That and some good old-fashioned painkillers get some pumped up, near to invulnerable feeling. Anyway, first few of these fuckers they threw at us, well, they absolutely kicked our asses, which is understandable since we, like idiots, were operating under normal conditions. At first, we hit them with charged stun gun. It just felt to them like somebody was tickling them from orbit or some shit, like nothing. For a while there, it was pretty scary. Nobody could win against them, so we had to find out what was driving them. So... One way or another, Hedda and me came up with a couple of these guys and ran a full toxicology on them to see what was up. We found the drugs, no surprise, right? But there was a little something extra. We were doing a body scan, full x-ray, to see if they'd Kevlar reinforced the skeletal elements or anything super clean when we tumbled on their game. The big boys, pushers are kitted out the chip, bedded in the frontal lobe, that does some extraordinary shit to their primary personalities, when we found this, Hedda went apeshit. Her being from the resident genius side, she took the first one of these chips we excavated, made an EEPROM version of her own, and started going to town on the thing. She got it to the point now where we can do some pretty wild data mining in the old skull de sac Pill points at his own head, hoping that the whole idea isn't just going into outer space. It's hard to tell what's happening with this girl. Is she paying attention or just whacked out? Fuck it. I'll find out when I'm done. Anyway, Hedda and I started thinking that we might be able to find something of you about who you are in there, he points to Dana's head, that you can't get to yourself. He steps back, his face a pinch of concern. Probably sounds kind of weird shit. Well, it is weird, and it's mildly risky, but I think it's worth talking about it. I mean, 
If you want to try, Dana's response is instant. Let's do it, she says. When do we go? <laughs> Yo, Butch, slow up, Pill offers an admiring tone but holds up a restraining palm. You're doing so good here. I'd hate to lose the productivity, so let's wait until the end of the shift, all right? Say around five. I'll come back for you then, and then we'll go see the doc. Wednesday, 14.31, GMT minus five. Fine yellow dust settles over Ramon and Luz as they're left standing beside the road. It has been too long since we have seen you, little sister, Ramon whispers, his watery eyes appraising the young, upright young woman standing before him. I am here now, Luz responds. The ritual of greeting is always the same, no matter who the speakers are. Across the centuries, it is traditional for the visitor to be treated as a family member whose absence is sorely noticed by those left behind. We have dreamed that there was a disturbance in your house, she says. We have come to see if we might be able to offer some help with a cure. Ramon reaches up and draws his forefingers down along the sides of his mouth. He lays a desiccated hand on Luz's forearm. Come, we will walk together, and I will show you what moves in dreams. Ramon passes through the world these days with the aid of a walking stick. In truth, he doesn't need it, but the illusion it provides let him keep some of his true vitality in reserve. As they move toward a path leading into the forest, his hand remains on the young woman's arm. Luz senses his energy, knows that he does not need her help, but rather is allowing himself to be in contact with her so that he can establish a closer connection with the movement of her spirit. No trouble in that. Such information flows two ways. They step onto a well-trodden lane leading into the thicket of jungle. Within minutes, the sights and sounds of village life, the trailside waste and signs of foot commerce are nothing but a memory. It is always so. Shifting from one world to another is one of the most dramatic changes Luz knows of, and it happens every time she leaves the organized, structured formality of towns and moves step by step, a kilometer at a time, back into the natural world. She loves this world most of all. Beneath her feet, the soils begin to change. She can feel its yielding softness as with each step the track is less compacted by travelers narrowing until it is no more than a thin defile in the dense, lush foliage. Jungle sounds own the air here. Bird calls reverberate through the upper reaches of the canopy. They walk for some time without speaking. Ramon's energy increases with each step along the trail, as if this place and its energy kindle within him the striving, indomitable spirit of life. After an hour or so, Luce notices something coming up ahead, she leans slightly forward, trying to determine whether or not the information she is receiving from her eyes matches the realities of the jungle. She knows that jungles are intensely deceptive places. What you think you see from the corner of your eye turns out to be an illusion, and what you think is an illusion can kill you in 60 seconds. In another hundred meters, they emerge into a large, grassy clearing. Ramon pulls gently on Luz's arm. Stay here for a moment, little sister, and listen. Luz closes her eyes, rushing water, the grating rumble of rocks tumbling one over the other beneath the surface, high-pitched keening of fish in conversation, splashing sounds of slippage as bits of decomposing bank slide into the river course and are swept away. The sibilant murmur of dithering currents 
trapped in eddies and whirling pools alongside the main flow. A crushing growl of unseen rapids whose foaming spume sizzles and pops, exploding into the warm midday air in a shatter of light. Into that focused inner space steps an intruder. A vision clear and chilling sweeps over her mind. An opening in the forest, men and women circling a wildly burning bonfire. Amid the flames, a tall man whose face is drenched in blood. He holds aloft a frog, and in his other hand, it is a human hand. Feeling as if she's been slapped, Luz realizes why she recognizes this figure. It is the man from the waterfall vision of her girlhood. Then another. The blood-faced man lies prostrate on the ground, another man kneeling at his feet. There is no face. She can only see the kneeling man's back. The kneeling man raises up a cup. He tilts his head back, but she still cannot make out his face. A stream of scarlet-blue fluid runs from the cup down over the kneeling man's face. His body begins to sag like a flower, wilting beneath intense sun. He is slumping forward, folding over himself, melting. After a moment, a gaseous glow is all that remains of him, and as she looks on, the gas plume resolves into an enormous crocodile. The K-man lays, unmoving for a moment, before, in a flash, it lurches forward, throwing the full weight of its body onto the still shape of the blood-faced man. Instantly, the two forms begin to undergo a transformation, and within the moments the scaled immensity of the caiman is fully absorbed into the body of the man that lies beneath its bulk. The transformed blood-faced man jerks upright abruptly. Luz's eyes fly open. She staggers, reeling back from the onslaught of images that have leapt across her mind. Ramon's hand gently braces the small of her back, steadying her. You see, the old man sighs, this is the way of things. Luz has yet to regain her focus. In the hazy afterlight of visions, she sees, floating in the air above the clearing, vague traces of image. Here, a boy laughing as a woman eats flower petals from his stomach, a speckled bear wheeling and boxing its own ears as a swarm of wasps harries its head. As her sight resolves, she sees the wispy residue of numerous such visions moving through the atmosphere of the place each with the gauzy vagueness of a low-lying evening ether in Valley Narrows. What is this place? Luz manages once she's recovered her balance. This is the dreaming space, offers the old man. Here is where the people come to ask the river's guidance in what they are to do. This is the place of ritual voyaging where shaman and students strive to see what dreams have to say. But... Things I saw, are they the dreams of? That is what I have brought you here to see. Such a dream, the nightmare of the long bones and the caiman, it is not a dream any of the people have had. Still this vision lingers here, will not go when asked. It brings tears to this place, but it does not come from the uwa. Since the days of its beginning, no one sits in this place. No one can remain free of fear with his dream here. So the people have stopped coming to ask the river for their dreams, and this is only part of the pity. But who, Luz says, uncertain of Ramon's meaning, this is the dream of the one who inhales the yopo without a guide, the vision of an outsider, someone who is not of the people. 
It is the mark of the alone man. I believe it is the journey of the one who is lost in the dream. That man? The one who is transformed, she says? That one, nods the old man, his face clean of telltale expression. Ramon's mind is filled with deep grieving of the young women who have lost their children over the last three years. Images of each of the four station themselves at the front of his conscious recall. He knows them all from birth, their disappearance, the surge of anger and fear among the people, the certainty that these crimes speak aloud of the unspeakable. He knows that the share of the truth of this is to unmask the secret. Fine, it is time. To me, this is a sign of the foul thing, a betrayal, he says. We must find out who the kneeling man is. This is what we must know, for that one is capable of anything. Do you have any idea who it could be? Luz asks as she begins to walk across the clearing, moving toward the water's edge. Ramon hesitates, staring into the eyes of the young shaman, licking his lips as if trying to rid himself of a bitter aftertaste. I believe it is Kohler, says Ramon, shaking his head. I think he is the one. He begins telling Luz of the long-ago walk with Rafe and the discovery the outsider made that day. He tells her of his feelings at that time, of the sense that there was foul magic laying like bait in the shade of the place they'd found the Amati. He recounts for Luz the strange feeling he'd had over the ensuing years about the way Rafe Kohler had been. The way of being is not a thing you hide or change, he says. It is a light you emit, a scent you leave behind. And Kohler's way of being in the world has changed since that long-ago day in the jungle when he found the herb, when he came to know the Longbone secret and began the journey toward the lost. Wednesday, 17.10, GMT-8. Pillhead John finds Dana in almost exactly the same position he'd left her in a few hours earlier. Still the same concentration, the deep sense of urgency about her. He calls to her from across the lab. Hey, Dana, you ready to head out? She looks up and nods. Just a sec, let me wrap this up. She caps several beakers and powers down surrounding equipment, swipes off her safety glasses and face mask before walking over to where he stands, waiting. Okay, she says, lead on. They move out across the factory floor, heading toward the north complex entrance. We're going to swing by and get my friend Collie, Pill says as he opens the door and waves Dana outside. Collie got a lot of institutional memory around here, and he might be able to help out. Whatever you say, Dana dips her head in agreement as they step down the covered walkway out toward the residential units. Pill knocks loudly at Collie's door. Yo, Queen Beauty Rest, time to rise and shine. Collie opens the door, looking substantially better off than he did earlier in the day. Rising, I can certainly handle, he says with a smirk, but shining may be best left for another day, huh? Nice bedhead, Mr. Man, Pill snarks. Collie, I want you to meet my new friend. This is Dana. The Dana? Collie? Collie Gray. They shake hands briefly. Heard about you from the dock, Collie allows. How you doing? She agreed to be a guinea pig for Hedda's newest version of the pusher, EPROM, Pillhead John answers first. Not that there's much to worry about, he aims the reassurance at Dana. Dog, don't mess around. It's not like you're going to be the first human trial, if you know what I mean. Seems like this could be interesting, Collie says. 
Let me grab a device. He disappears back inside for a moment and re-emerges with a coat and a slim case. Let's go. Fifteen minutes later, the three of them are inside a cavernous steel sphere. To Dana, it seems as though they've stepped into one of the giant deep space radar domes on Hawaii. She is amazed at the scale of the place. Used to be this was all part of an oil refinery. Down in the 90s, Pill confides as they move inside, his voice is low, nearly a whisper. This was a natural gas storage pod, part of a Superfund site that got zero money. We took it over about five years ago and sanitized it. Now we mostly use it for chamber recitals. Got a first-rate string quartet. Most of their stuff is original, but last month they did a concert of this band Tool Stuff back in the day. Great, man. It was fucking fantastic. Hard to believe Dana's skepticism is unguarded. The acoustic in here must be terrible. It's a steel ball. Colleen interrupts. Terrible for a lot of things. Just specifically great for quartets and septets. That's why we work mostly with strings. Anything else you are correct would bounce you out of your head. We also use it as a group meditation facility, art, dance, yoga studios, psyops theater. Dr. Jean Lee has some of her experimental stuff in here as well, of course. They move around a catwalk, welded to the sphere walls, descending a steep staircase down to the series of makeshift walls that block off a chunk of the floor space at the bottom of the huge area. Dr. Jean Lee comes out from behind a curtained partition. Hello there. The lined face still offers a smile that is open and genuine. I heard you coming. How was your day of work, Dana? Good, doctor, Dana says. It was good. Or at least distracting, which amounts to the same thing for me right now. At least part of me knows who I am. Where do we do this thing with a chip or whatever? Why don't you follow me, Hedda beckons, slipping back behind the curtain door she emerged from. The three of them follow her in, finding themselves in what seems for the world like a comfortable therapist's office rather than a mad scientist lab. The space comes complete with a wooden desk and a lovely old leather recliner on one side. Dr. Jean-Lee looks at Dana when they've all entered the room and smiles. Not what you were expecting? Don't worry, my dear. The procedure today is completely non-invasive. We won't be needing any sophisticated apparatus, except this, of course. She opens a metal case on the desktop to reveal a small chip and a reader with several wires sticking out at odd angles. I assume John told you how this works. More or less, Dana says. I mean, it's not like I understand it all, but if it'll help me remember, then I'm all for it. Ah, Hedda breathes a sigh of enlightenment, recognizing that some elements of what she hopes to accomplish have been lost in translation. That is close, Dana, but not exact. Let me clarify. What we hope to achieve is not to make you remember, per se, but to allow us to see images from your primary personality, we might call them elements of your true self that your amnesia has suppressed. In a sense, we will be recovering certain images of memories for you, since you're currently not able to do that for yourself. This doesn't mean we will restore a direct connection inside your brain between you and your memories. Does that make sense? Dana nods, but her expression reflects a lingering uncertainty so you all get to look at my memory, even though I can't remember it. Man, weird, right? She screws her face into a knot of concentrated thought and decides, All right, then. Let's give it a blast. Hedda shrugs her own response to an idea that is clearly easier to enact than explain. What this means, in a way, is that she will be able to look at your memory, even though you can't access it, yes? 
She lays a reassuring hand on Dana's arm. It'll be easier to understand when we're finished. If you're comfortable, please have a seat on the couch. Dana complies, sitting in the middle of the amazingly comfortable old seat. Now, Dr. Shrenley continues, the only thing I'll need from you is your permission to give you an injection. The drug is tried and true, sodium pentothal, you've probably heard it, it's called truth serum. At one time it was used in very crass ways, but it has proven useful for this procedure. In the dosage I'll be using, it will simply make the neural membranes more permeable to chloride ions, resulting in a general curbing of cortex exhibition. It allows your conscious self to relax in a sense and, and lets the EEPROM do its work. Once the drug has taken effect, we simply download what the EEPROM processes to a data file and then view the contents. Will I be conscious? Dana asks. Not totally out, Pillhead John interacts, but exactly with us either. You may become a bit suggestible, but don't worry about it, he smiles. Just do your best to relax. The more you can do that, the better our results will be. Okay, Dana says. Let's get started. Dr. Charnley opens a drawer of the desk and gets out a small syringe. Pulling a single serrette out and tapping it, she walks over to Dana and rolls up her sleeve. This is an intramuscular shot, so there'll be a slight pinch. She jabs the needle into Dana's shoulder and depresses the plunger until the serrette is empty. Now, Hedda says, we'll just need to wait a few moments until the drug has had time to reach its full effect. back next week with chapter 15 of criminal magic please come back and join us then if you are enjoying this story please leave a rating and review of the podcast to help others find it as well